If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today, I am beyond excited to be talking with Chris Anderson. Chris is the curator of TED, a nonprofit media organization that leverages the power of ideas to make a better future. Born in 1957, Chris spent most of his early life in Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, and in 1985, he launched Future Publishing, which ultimately expanded to more than 130 magazines and 1,500 employees. In 2001, Chris took over the leadership of the TED Conference. Under his stewardship, over 3,600 talks and animated lessons have been released free on the TED website with more than 100,000 on YouTube. He's the founding partner of Countdown, a global initiative to champion and accelerate solutions to the climate crisis, turning ideas into action. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, TED Talks, and has overseen the introduction of TEDx, TED Ed, TED Fellows, and The Audacious Project, a new form of collaborative philanthropy. And just a few weeks ago, Chris released his latest book, Infectious Generosity, The Ultimate Idea Worth Spreading. I read it on a recent flight to Portland. It was about a four and a half hour flight. And as soon as I closed the cover, I immediately knew that I had to have you on the show, Chris. <laughs> excellent, excellent. It, it truly is an inspiring and thought-provoking book. And I just thank you for writing such a beautiful book and call to action. Welcome to the show. That's very nice to be here. Nice to meet you, Tammy. Nice to meet you too. Let's just jump right into it. Infectious generosity is both a call to action and a playbook for how to take generosity viral. Chris, tell us about your inspiration for writing the book. I think panic, mostly. Like <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't stand how mean the world has become. I really can't. I'm a tech optimist. I mean, that's what's in my bone. And spent m most of the 90s and the early and the aughts thinking what an incredible invention this is. And at last we have a tool that can bring the world together. And, and it's, it's done some amazing things. But the last decade has been one of crushing dismay and disappointment, honestly. And, and I'm alarmed that the world seems to be getting ever more divided. I think the internet's played an important role. It's obviously not, it's more complex than that. But I think the internet, especially social media, have played a key role. And I'm not okay with that. I don't think any of us should be. Like, it, it feels like everything else we care about. And I know everyone listening on, on this call cares about many things, you know, whether it's trying to solve inequality or climate or injustices of all kinds, whatever. We can't do the big things when we're so divided. And so I have been persuaded that there might be, there might be a pathway back by harnessing the power of that most ancient human instinct, just reshaping it a little bit for the connected age that we're in. 
and seeing if we can't find a way to make kindness go viral in the way that nastiness and toxicity has been going viral. Let's take this on. This is a fight we kind of have to fight. And amazingly, and I think everyone's first reaction to this is skepticism, but amazingly, I do think there are people out there who figured out how to do this. And there's a playbook that we can all learn from. So that, that was the inspiration. I can speak for myself, and I suspect so many of our listeners that we are with you, that this divisiveness, that this anger, and really just a lot of hate is not okay. Just know you've got a lot of supporters in that and, and in this call to action. In the book, you ask the question, what would it take to make generosity infectious? Like, what would it take for it to go viral? Kindness. So what conclusions did you come to? So I basically looked at what is happening out there and what worked and tried to extract from it. I mean, the biggest thing to say is that anything that evokes strong human emotion will go viral. That's basically what, what drives that behavior. And the problem we're facing is that the easiest human emotions to stimulate are the dark ones. This is just, I'm afraid, how, how we're built. There are evolutionary reasons why, but we do respond more rapidly and more quickly to threats and fear and anger and outrage and disgust and so forth. But in so many areas of life, we figured out how to tweak those instincts, how to use our reflective selves to do better than just what our, our natural you know, sort of instincts would do. And so it turns out that there's lots of ways that you can get deeply positive emotions to spread. It, it, it's it's not just empathy or compassion, but it's, it's delight, laughter, awe, wonder. And, uh, and yes, human kindness, stories of human kindness can really spread. So I was inspired early on by this amazing story from Australia, where in the early days of the pandemic, this woman, Catherine Barrett, she's, she's an anti-ageism campaigner, but she was, she was locked up at home like everyone else and feeling blue and uh, wondering what on earth to do and seeing these horrible stories of fights breaking out in supermarkets over toilet rolls and all this sort of stuff. And thinking, this can't be who we are. And, and she, she saw this box of tissues that had been left out by a neighbor. This to say, does anyone want one? Please take one. And then, of course, a lot of people need to cry. And she was moved by, it's a, such a simple thing. She took a picture of it. She put it on Facebook and said, okay, here's my group. It's the kindness pandemic. Mm -hmm. And she went to bed and the next morning, 2,000 people had joined her group. And a few weeks later, tens of thousands, and now 500,000 people have joined this group. And the stories that they tell are really, really remarkable. And the stories encourage them that they actually could take action. So a group of them, for example, went to supermarkets. I just spoke with Catherine last week. They went to supermarkets and said, you know, we're going to be the kindest antidote to what these staff have been suffering. And so they would go and like, they'd buy a box of chocolates and then they'd give it to the, to the person who was, you know, running up their bill mm. and uh, saying, just thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And these videos started to go viral in Australia and on this group. And, and that just showed so powerfully that, yes, you can have a pandemic of kindness. And in fact, acts of kindness and goodness are happening all over the world every day in huge numbers. We just don't tell those stories the way we could. So what if we tell those stories? And uh, you know, that, that, I think that would change how we think of each other. And I, I think the important thing to say, Tammy, is that this isn't just like a, 
putting a sort of a comforting band-aid on, on reality. It's actually ripping off the misleading band-aid that is being out there. It is not that the, the news that we are getting of each other is not reflective of the actual truth of humanity. We're giving up way too much ground to the bad stuff simply because of this human cognitive bug that we, that we have. The actual objective truth is that there is far more going on on the other side of the equation. And, uh, and if, we, if we just pay a little more attention and share it, I think everything changes. We, we are the stories we tell. You can't achieve something great with other people if you, if you think that we're all basically cynical, nasty, and unpleasant. You, you have to have some sort of belief that humans are capable of doing good things to each other. And the objective truth is that we are. That's so powerful. And I immediately think of the diary of Anne Frank and when she said that she has to believe that people are basically good in the face of her experience and hiding for mm. more than two years from the Nazis. I mean, I just, it's incredible. And yeah, it resonates with me that the ugliness, the anger, the fear, the whatever we feel, how there's so little filter on that. So we put it out into the world. And mm. when it comes to simple acts of kindness, maybe there's a humility that mm. keeps us from sharing those things. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's right. And I think the traditional way that we've been taught about generosity is that, you know, you, you, you must stay modest about it. You, you should never boast about your generosity or, or you're actually undermining it. It's no longer generosity or just boosting your reputation. So this is, this is a really key question. What, what I argue in the book, and it's an argument that may annoy some people on first hearing it, what I argue in the book is that we actually have to let go of this because the world is connected now. So what's different is that 50 years ago, if you were to boast about your generosity, 100 people might hear about that eventually if you were lucky. But now, stories of generosity can spread to thousands of people, maybe millions. And already, bad stories are spreading to those people. So I, I feel like we're in, in an existential battle to try and show the different side of humanity. And so my question is, is there a fun way and a, and a compelling way and a modest way and a, to share your own stories? Because you know your stories better than anyone else. I mean, look, it, if, if, you, if you see someone else being generous or kind, share that story by all means. That's wonderful. We should all be you know, amplifying what other people are doing. But I actually think there are ways to share our own stories that can inspire people. And, and the, the best way to make it non-boastful is just to acknowledge you know, how, how blessed and lucky and all of us are. The, the book contains, you know, I, I talk about my experience at TED and giving away TED Talks to the world and so forth. And possibly that will come over to someone as boastful, but it's intended as, I, I was just so lucky. I was in the, the right place. I had this amazing team around me and uh, you know, I had amazing parents. You know, roll the clock back however much you like. We are all basically, <laughs> every good thing we do, every bad thing we do, there's a reason behind it. And in, in a way, it all comes down to a form of serendipity. But when things work, we should just find a way of celebrating it together. Because this is how people are encouraged and inspired and learn and want to do things themselves. And so, yeah, that's basically my invitation in the book is be ready to figure out braver, bolder, more authentic 
ways of being generous that can evoke emotion, be crazily creative if you can. All these things give tales of generosity a better chance to, to spread and, and work their magic, work their impact, send ripples across the universe. And if instead of instead of criticizing each other and sniping at each other for perceived imperfections in how we do our generosity. Oh, are they just doing that for the reputation? Oh, how did, did they make that money with absolute purity? Oh, yeah, there's there so many ways that we snark at acts of kindness. If we flip that and instead started looking for the goodness in people, looking for good intention and celebrated that and celebrated the fact that in the modern era, Every act of generosity, because it has such ripple effects and consequences, there are bound to be mixed motivations. That's good. Generosity is smart. It's in, it's in your own long-term interests. So instead of that being a, a problem, we should celebrate it. And that, that, that is absolutely key to turning the tide here. Mm, I love that. You're acknowledging that we're kind of hardwired for a negative bias. Correct. And we can reframe it. We can reframe generosity. Not as a, oh, look at me, aren't I so amazing? And reframe it like, as you said, like, I'm so blessed. I had this opportunity. I feel so good. My mother would be proud. Like, just reframe it. And if that means redirecting the light on influences in your life, or just as you said about your experience as the head of TED, like, I was in the right place at the right time. And here was this opportunity. And I went for it. As fundraising professionals, which, as you know, is the great majority of our listeners, we are so, like, as a profession, we shine the light on everyone else. Mm. We kind of stay back. We kind of stay in the background, acknowledging our supporters, our amazing volunteers, our courageous program participants who take their lives on. And rarely do we allow ourselves to be in that spotlight. Hmm. Which, that's a tragedy, actually. Because that, that, like devoting a life to fundraising is itself a pretty supreme act of generosity, I'd say. Like most people find that hard. It's hard asking people for money in many ways. I mean, I guess some people find it a little less hard than, than others, but it is the essential engine without which the world's heroes, by which I mean change makers uh, in general, could not do what they do. And, and that, the challenges of fundraising in the nonprofit world are shocking. Like it's shocking how unfairly that whole world is, your whole world is, is structured. Like I compare in the book, what's, what is the difference between in the business world, raising money in the business world and raising money in the nonprofit world? And it's, it's hard raising money, whoever you are, sure. But in the business world, there are all these things have been worked out, like the whole venture capital world. Venture capital is pooled money from hundreds and hundreds of investors. So the, the venture capitalist can sit there and represent so many people's money. There's, there's really little equivalent of that in the nonprofit world. You have to go to all those individual investors, as it were, separately. Well, that's exhausting. There's no IPO, you know, like in the, in the for profit world, companies, when they get to a certain stage, can do an IPO and they've, they've raised possibly all the money they'll ever need to raise. From then on, they just build what they want to build. How amazing is that? There's equivalent of that. And so it's no surprise that 
the stats I've heard is that often it's, it can be 10 meetings for every, every check that's written. And many of those meetings, often they're with the same, you know, person and then restrictions get put on the money. And it is exhausting. I've seen people who are the most talented and amazing and big hearted people in the world who should be given a chance to actually do the work that they're on the planet to do. Having to spend 50% or more of their time raising money, it's, it's, it's wrong. It's just really, really, really wrong that we're structured this way. And so for anyone who has devoted time and effort to trying to advocate for these people, raise money, make, make possible the, the work that we all care so much about, heroic. It's heroic and it's generous. And, and it deserves, in a fairer world, that work deserves to have even greater ripple effects than it already has. And I, and I actually believe it can. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I think that that kind of acknowledgement and encouragement goes a very, very long way. So truly, thank you. Hmm. Now, Chris, in the book, you share a sequence of events at TED that convinced you that the rules around generosity in this connected age have changed forever. Share what happened and the insights that you gained. So TED is owned by a nonprofit. I took it over in 2001. I'd been a successful entrepreneur for a while and then and set up a foundation when times were good. And then the dot-com bust kind of blew up my company and, and, and it was so painful. But, but I had a chance to buy TED and, and I bought it using the foundation that I'd set up. And, and so we always wondered because, you know, I mean, in some ways, honestly, like honest story is that from a psychological point of view, I was wounded and I wanted to rest and lick my wounds and, and hang out with really interesting people instead of trying to build a big organization. It just seemed like a lot more fun, but it's a nonprofit that owns it. You have an obligation to try and share the magic of TED with the world. So what to do? TED was a conference back then, you know, an annual conference, technology, entertainment, design. But it was inspiring and, and the talks deserved a wider audience. We couldn't figure out how to do it. So when online video came along in basically 2006, we suddenly thought we could now actually share this stuff online for free. Bother. <laughs> that, could, <laughs> that, that could risk, that puts us in a bit of a dilemma because that could risk the, the future of the conference where, where people, why would people come when they stuff free online? But, you know, hearing my parents' voice in my head, being surrounded by a brave team and being owned by a nonprofit, whatever, it felt like the right thing to do was to give, give the stuff away. So we did. And to our amazement and delight, these talks went viral and the impact of the conference was actually quite the reverse. It, it, it really boosted demand for it because suddenly a lot of people around the world knew about it. And so we thought, wait a second, you know, we've heard TED Talks about this, that in this age, information wants to be free, that there's new forms of collaboration possible online. We started to get convinced that this idea of radical generosity was a thing that was worth paying attention to, that if you were brave in what you gave away, you could be absolutely amazed at what came back. I mean, when you think about it, one, it's, it's easy to give away something really special. In our case, it was videos, talk videos, but I mean, many other people, they're creating something beautiful or they, they have some other form of knowledge they can share or they can, or it's an app or it's, it's music or, you know, what, what have you. We can share stuff that really matters to us to an indefinitely large number of people. 
at a total distribution cost of zero dollars. I mean, look at what you're doing, Tammy. You have a, a stressful time pulling these podcast episodes together, but you're, you're giving your time and, and your one hour translates into thousands and thousands of hours of inspiration, hitting inspiration, knowledge, insight, hitting all these other minds. You know, this just was not possible 20 years ago. And, yes. and so it's, it's kind of a miracle. And we live in this age now of this abundance of, of amazingness all given to us for free. Anyway, it got us thinking and we adopted radical generosity, kind of what we called it at the time, radical openness, radical generosity as our, as our operating principle. And it, it led us to an, what was probably a new, crazier decision, which is to try giving away our brand. TED to let people run their own TED events. We asked them to use the label X, which stands for self-organized. And uh, but it was still perceived as a risk capable of damaging us. And we did indeed have embarrassing moments when someone would book a speaker with never heard of it turn out to be awful in some way. But the amazing, the truly amazing story is how often that didn't happen, how amazing most of these events were, how hard people work to get them right. It's to the point where today you have, you've probably got 60, 70,000 volunteers around the world producing 3,000 annual events. It costs us nothing. It's their financial risk. It's their time. Those events churn out 25,000 TED Talks a year that are posted on YouTube. And, and so it's become this tool for just massively amplifying whatever TED could have dreamt of doing. TEDx has made it far bigger. And it comes from letting go and giving, giving away, taking a risk. And so that, I guess that's, that's what I concluded, and it's, it's definitely one of the drivers of this, of this book, is that in this connected age, you should dream about giving away the most radical thing you can think of giving away, and you may be amazed at what comes back. Now, I'm, I'm not saying do it stupidly, because in, in, in the case of TEDx, there are rules and tools. You know, you have to honor the format, and there's lots of advice on how to do a good event. So it needs to be done with nuance and thought. But man, if, if you get it right, it is completely transformative. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's really the thing, that this age is different. The, the, the technology really has changed the rules about what we should hold on to and what we should give away. Mm, so much courage and such a beautiful outcome. <laughs> there are TEDx events held in prisons and refugee camps. I mean, you, you watch these and you hear some of the stories that come back and and you know we could never have we've never thought of doing that we never could have done that really at, at any you know like putting on events is really hard so it's just it's just been amazing to watch what has happened there such that the, the generous I guess what I'm saying is the generosity we've got back far 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 outweighs what anything that we did incredible and I just have to acknowledge like in that courageous act of radical generosity you opened up accessibility to individuals, to communities that would never have access to potentially to that kind of inspiration and education if it had just continued to be an extraordinary conference. That's true. Ted Ted was an elite conference of, you know, most people couldn't afford to, to come. And we, we definitely wanted to do something about that as well. And both giving away the content and, and the brand as well allowed us to do that. Yeah, amazing. In the book, you share some incredible research from Longview Philanthropy founder and president Natalie Cargill. And it looks at what if the one, you look at a lot of what ifs, and I, 
I have started adapting that phrase when I'm brainstorming. So thank you for that as a side. But mm. the, her research looks at what if the 1% gave 10%? Essentially, how could the privilege today change the world? Mm. End world hunger, tuberculosis, HIV, modern slavery, extreme poverty, etc. Talk us through that what if. Yeah, Natalie's amazing. She gave a great TED Talk about this. And I've, I've loved brainstorming with her and really discovering this research. I mean, look, my, my start point onto this was guilt. Like, <laughs> my parents were amazing. They were missionaries. And I've spent most of my life daunted by the fact that I don't do enough. And, and I've actually worried that one problem with trying to promote generosity or whatever is that a lot of people, whether they say so or not, have this this fear that if they go one step down that journey, they're going to get pulled into a rabbit hole of endless obligation. You know, you know, or there's always another suffering person on the other side of the planet. How can you ever enjoy any act of indulgence again? You know, goodbye, strawberry ice cream. <laughs> I knew you well. <laughs> I didn't know philosophically even how to how to make sense of that. So part of what is so interesting about Natalie's work. So here's the, here's the, the, the experiment I did with, with her. It was to say, what would happen if people who could give gave, I actually tweaked it a bit because 10% of income is a bold and challenging pledge for many people. For the very rich, it actually isn't that big a pledge, a bigger issue because most of, because they, they get their spending money out of their net worth rather than income. Like they may borrow against their net worth or that. And, and, and so there is a different, religious tradition in Islam called zakat, which is to give away two and a half percent of your net worth, as it were, of your wealth every year. And that is a much more challenging effort for the very rich. I, I've seen stats recently that the most of most billionaires, for example, give away less than half a percent of their net worth annually, which means that their net worth is going to go up forever. So anyway, it's a if a third of the top 1% of the world, those willing to do it, committed to the higher of 10% of their income or 2.5% of their net worth annually, in round numbers, that raises about $3.5 trillion, okay. trillion with a TR, <laughs> dollars wow. of philanthropy annually. And what Natalie's work suggested is that that amount of money could fix basically every human challenge we face that philanthropy could reasonably fix. So think about that. She gives this inspiring sort of, if, if, if you like, it's a starting point of here are credible ideas, for example, for how philanthropy might solve all of the following problems, from climate to inequality to injustice, so, so forth. And it's an amazing list. But so when you think about that, one, I, I find it incredibly exciting. We actually could do this. This, this amount of money is affordable. Someone who's in the top 1%, although by the way, <laughs> the top 1% globally means approximately everyone who's making 60 or 70K or more here in the, in the West. So it's like people don't understand how low the 99% are. Mm. So lots of people who are on 60, 70K can't afford to give away 10% and, and you know they've got other issues. But most of the money is going to come from people who are wealthier than that. And, uh, and it's, it's enough to do something actually amazing. Like th there is enough abundance in the world for humanity to 
really ramp up its philanthropy and tackle all the problems that can be tackled. And that is going to be such a more exciting and beautiful world. I think it's a world where instead of being cynical about philanthropy, we're excited by it because we see it achieving amazing things. And the other thing that for me and for possibly it's only me, but I think actually there's many others who may feel this way, it, it allows a delicious exhaling of breath. Because if you do that, I think you've done your bit financially. If you sign up for that, you, 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 can, you can do that and still have a joyful life. You know, most people who are in that top 1% will be able to do that and still buy a latte and still go on vacation. And, you know, so to me, it's a really exciting picture that if we made it a, a social norm, and, and I mean, I think of your audience here and, and who you're going out to, you know, imagine if the people you're reaching out to had it in their heads that at some point they, they could and should aspire to giving away 10% of their income or giving away 2.5% of their net worth. That would actually unlock a huge amount of money. It would make your, your work so much more doable. I think it would also do, it would do two other things that I think are really important. It would nudge people to being more st strategic about how they give. So much of our philanthropy is done in the moment of, of, okay, you persuaded me. I guess I should do that. Boom, write the check. <laughs> Don't have to think about that now for a bit. What we want, I think, is for people to be thoughtful about how they spend the money. As you know more than anyone, you know, the difference between a good and bad use of philanthropy can be orders of magnitude. You know, some orgs are just much, much better at making system change or at delivering services effectively. And, and so we should be paying attention to this and, and giving it the same kind of strategic thought we give other things as opposed to just being moved by a picture of a crying child. And, and so, so I think once someone's committed to that as this is what I'm going to do every year, we're going to give away this amount of money, you then have to bring your family together and say, well, what do we care about? What are we going to do? You know, which organizations will we invest a bit of time in to understand them? And, and the other thing that they will get out of it, by the way, is joy. Like when, when you actually do this the right way, it becomes joyful. You, you discover, I, I like this version of myself. Yes. You're reminding me of a story. For nine years, I was chief philanthropy officer at the Children's Center in Detroit. Mm. So serving about 7,500 children a year who had mental and behavioral health issues that were just compounded by the fact that they lived in poverty. Right. But these beautiful, brilliant children who, you know, were challenged by these issues, but not mm. insurmountable. So I had a particular donor family. They were not uber wealthy. They were probably middle class, maybe upper middle class. And, you know, they they were giving, I want to say they were giving about twenty five hundred, maybe three thousand dollars a year. And it was when the economy was uncertain, they said, we'd like to meet with you. We'd like you to come. It was a, a couple and their two small children, like under 10 years old. And so I went to their house and I sat down with them and we were having a nice visit. And they said, we wanted to give you this check personally. And we wanted you to know that we sat down as a family and we talked about how the economy and it's kind of difficult right now. And, but we decided that we wanted to prioritize making a gift to help other children instead of going on our family vacation this year. 
And they had kids, like the little ones, like they jumped off the sofa and they started jumping up and down and clapping and how excited they were. It was like they felt so <laughs> much joy in what could have been viewed as a sacrifice, but it was mm. a joy. And yeah. I, I think that's exactly what you're describing. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's it's surprising that we don't know this as deeply as we should. There's there's a deeply profound, it's literally a biological link between generosity and joy. And that, you know, that some of the deeper senses of discovering a sense of purpose in life it come from generosity. And so, yeah, it's another example of how generosity is, is in someone's long-term self-interest. I mean, would you rather be a joyful person or a sad and greedy person? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it kind of it comes down to that. You know, and I think it, it's, it sounds to me from what I've read and what you've shared that generosity was ingrained in you from an early age. You know, it, being in a family of missionaries, like giving hmm. back and quite candidly, seeing how fortunate you are or have been. Now, not that that means you've had a perfect life and you haven't had disappointments or traumas or, you know, like, but no one knows someone else's story. But that's mm. from the outside in, you learned that from a very early age. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And it was, you know, super lucky. Like I say, a lot of my life, it felt both lucky and a burden. And I, I think in more recent years where I've, I've sort of felt, okay, I've, I've discovered my way of being generous that is effective and it and it's joyful to me and i i think it's not easy or obvious for everyone to find their own way i, th I think what i'd say is it's just it's worth investing time in just trying to do go on a curiosity journey about discover what you really care about and where you can add something and it's not necessarily money you know it's it's there are many other ways to to give and contribute yeah well, that is a great segue into a point that you make about generosity, that it can take many forms. So time, money, expertise or influence or special, you know, gifts and talents. And you really encourage acts of generosity, great and small, that they all have a ripple effect. Will you share a couple of awe-inspiring stories of generosity in different forms? Yeah, it starts with finding a generous mindset, which is just the willingness to turn out. You know, we're, we're stressed by so many things and have so many obligations on us. And most of our lives, we sort of sleepwalk through them, just must go to work, must be on time, must do this, email inbox, you know, whatever. And the moment when you can take a breath and look out and see someone else and see that they have a story and and connect with that in some way. That's the first act. And I, I think that follows most naturally when you can find time just for gratitude. And and that's that's the single biggest almost sort of like start point that, that someone can do is be be grateful and then then you can engage with that. Or inspiring stories. I don't know. How about this one? I, that there's someone who comes here and helps us with you know hospitality events. She's she's just a, a lovely I won't embarrass uh, by naming her, but she's 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 a lovely person. Gave her the copy of the book. She read it, and she, this week she she told me I was on a subway, and and a guy came in who who normally, honestly, would probably scare me a bit. But I'd read your book, and I just decided to talk 
to him. And I ended up just, I, I just gave him $10. That was all. I gave him 10 but he was, he was, he was moved by it. And I was moved by it. Like my whole day was lit up by that one conversation. So I, I find that awe inspiring that something as simple as that can help both, both sides, both people there were helped. And by the way, I'm not saying that, you know, don't, don't put your life at risk and don't like safety matters, but, but in general, just people that, that the power of being seen, so many things start that way. We're in an era where people don't feel seen and, and just seeing someone, magic can start from, from that. And, you know, there's stories in the book about that, you know, the, the hairdresser who in London saw someone in need, decided to stop and offer them a haircut. They got so much joy from it on both sides. And the hairdresser ended up, his name's Joshua Coombs, he ended up forming a whole movement on Instagram, do something for nothing. And, and, but it, it all started from one moment when, when, you know, someone was seen, ripple effects yeah. can follow. And then of the, of the different kinds of ways to be generous, I think the, the so, so some of them are, you know, to, to share knowledge is, is an obvious one. You know, something that other people would really benefit from. Hospitality is actually a wonderful act of generosity from which many other things flow. You bring people together. You engage in something that is a profound human activity that is in every culture on earth. It opens people up and you can dream together maybe about like, is there something you could do together in your community? Just the gift of sharing contacts, you know, share, bringing someone into your network is a huge, huge gift. What's, what's remarkable about all these is, is that they, they remind me just how asymmetric generosity is. And this is, this is its power. So the cost to the giver is much less than the gain from the receiver in so many cases. You know, you, you, you tell someone something you know, you've given away nothing, really, except the exclusive right to use that knowledge. But you may have changed their life. You share a contact or you bring someone into a network, it costs you an email and a bit of explanation to your friend about why, they, why you're making this introduction. Again, it can be transformative for this, this other person. All, all generosity is, is like this. And it's, it's why in a world where generosity is more deeply embedded, everyone benefits. Everyone benefits because we, can, we, we gain more from that world than we are giving. And what's weird is that, like in, in that case of the generosity of someone being seen, you know, it, it creates joy on both sides of the equation. There is, there is no loss there. It is, it, it, so these are all positive sum exchanges. A world with more positive sum exchanges adds up to a lot. Yes. Yes. I love that. And just an acknowledgement. I mean, you were generous to acknowledge the fact that we produce the Intentional Fundraiser podcast and the ripple effect of that to our listeners and others. But at the core in this episode, you've been incredibly generous to give us an hour of your time, plus some of the <laughs> scheduling, organizing. And so, you know, I thank you for your incredible generosity. And every minute of that hour has been lovely so far, joyful. And so I'm, you know, th this is the thing. If we can lay aside our, our cynicism for a bit, it really is possible to imagine a world in which humans make each other's lives better and in so doing 
make their own life better. It's literally possible to imagine that. And that's the world I want. That's the world we should all want. And with with enough people coming on board, I I don't know, I maybe I've been drinking the Kool-Aid too long or whatever, but I've, I've been persuaded that there is a pathway here. Not an easy one because the hatred is real, the toxicity is real, the division is real. But there's lots of signs to me of the pendulum swinging a bit, that people are sick of this. They want to find a better way. And especially if you look at what's happening in the next generation, I mean, let's face it, there's very annoying things about the next generation, no <laughs> doubt. But they, they don't want to inherit a mean world. And when you look at who is gaining most influence among their peers, it's often the people who are being doing wonderful things, not who are spreading toxicity. I write in the book a bit about Mr. Beast, Jimmy Donaldson, he's known as Mr. Beast, who has 200 million subscribers plus on YouTube and creates just crazy videos. Videos that, you know, like some, some of, a lot of them are to do with kindness in some way. You know, here are a thousand people who I paid cataract surgery for and arranged and look how happy it made them. I mean, some people, especially people who are professional, people who are in the world of philanthropy, I think find some of this kind of at first irritating because it's like, you know, are you really doing that cost effectively? And is that creating system change and so on and so on. But I think when you pull the camera back and say the big picture here is that millions and millions and millions of people in the next generation are being taught that kindness can be cool and it can be fun and it can be uplifting. I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Sign me up. And I think that Gen Z particularly is also very interested in creating community, like much more so mm. than we boomers who, you know, have been kind of categorized as like, let's work hard, let's make money, let's take care of me and mine, and then consider generosity. Mm. Um, and so it's just interesting to study generational generosity and, and orientation uh, mm. to life. Chris, as you know, our listeners are big-hearted do-gooders. They're fundraisers, they're nonprofit leaders, and they work really, really hard. And you've acknowledged that 40, 50 hours a week focused on generosity with donors, mm. with volunteers, community partners, program participants. Tell us, how can they join the infectious generosity movement in their work and in their personal lives in a different way or in a heightened way or through a new prism to just, again, accelerate? I mean, some obvious things are just to take the time for self-care and so forth. It, it's a world where you get told no so often that it can be crushing and it can make you actually, I think, really angry at, at people. Like, how dare they? How? And, 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 and there are probably days where you feel, I hate that I have to spend time kissing up to people who, who I have reason to really not like because of how hard they're making this, this for me. So, I mean, I think all, all of that is, is worth acknowledging. It's, it's really, really hard work. I've spoken to a lot of donors, uh, on the, including very rich donors, and there def definitely are some who you, know, you wish were different and cared a, a little bit more. But the, honestly, the majority of people who I've spoken to seem to be really serious about wanting to give back to the world in some way. 
And the truth is that, that giving philanthropically is really hard. It's hard to make the choice. Once you've let go of your money, it's gone. People don't watch fish and, and so forth. So I'll say two things here. One is just a small thing, which is that a question that I think traps people is this question. I'm just not sure this is the best use of my philanthropy. There will never be a positive answer to that question because you can't ever imagine every possible scenario in the world. Like, have you literally examined every other possible use of your philanthropy? No, you've not, and you never can. It's a toxic, deadly question, and it leads to the can being kicked down the road. So we, we've got to try and gently nudge <laughs> people away from that question and say, actually, the question is, is this a great use of, of my philanthropy? That's enough. Like, is it better to have my money snoozing away in my bank account or actually out there in the world, making the world better in, in some, some way, in some plausible way? So that's one, one shift that I think is helpful. But the bigger thing I'll say is this. I was, was so inspired by the words of Richard Rockefeller about, gosh, 12, 12 or 13 years ago now. We were, we were on a, a boat trip together trying to raise money a bunch of marine-focused nonprofits on board, and we had a few donors on board, and people were sort of coming up with their best idea and then trying to find the right donors and so forth. And it was a wild process and, and quite stressful for people. And Richard stood up, on, I think, the second or third evening and said, I just, I just want to share an observation. He said, all, all of us who raise money, we find it hard going, and our instant instinct is to therefore reduce what we ask for because we think we'll have a better chance. You know, we want, maybe we can just cut it to the level where a single donor could help us. He said, my deep advice, my deep advice to people is this, is that the best donors out there do not believe in small plans. Mm. It says, don't ask for less, ask for more, you know, be audacious. And I, I thought that was stunning advice and, and his words have never left me. And it, they actually seeded something called the Audacious Project a few years later. We lost Richard a few years ago in a, in a plane crash, and I never had the chance to tell him that literally there is a causal chain between that little speech that he gave on that boat and the raising of now nearly $3 billion for 40 or 40 or 50 different nonprofits through the Audacious Project. It came from him. And it's Incredible. a great example of infectious generosity. We're all connected. One, one piece of wisdom can have extraordinary ripple effects. And so that, that would be my, when, when it feels hard, the temptation is to, is to cut back and ask for less and get what you can and whatever terms you can. And yes, of course, we'll add your name, dear donor, into our program and, and so forth. The other way to go is just to dream bigger, to find a way of saying, no, you know, here's how this could be not great, but amazing. Dream with me. Encourage them to dream with you. How great could we make this? This doesn't apply to everyone, but certainly people who have made their money entrepreneurially and so forth, they're excited by big ideas, big dreams. And so I would, that's what I would encourage. I love it. I love it. And I agree wholeheartedly. I feel like people want to solve the world's problems, not put another Band-Aid at a better price point on them, right? Because mm. it's it, to your earlier point, is this the most efficient or effective way I can give, right? Mm. Let's solve some of these problems. And those kinds of big, hairy, audacious goals take big, hairy, audacious investment. Yeah, mm. so good. So good. 
you share that your mother gave you an incredible gift when she said, when you commit to a journey of generosity, sooner or later, two companions will join you, meaning and happiness. Mm. Unpack that for us, Chris. Yeah, my, my mother, you know, she was a missionary. She led, led a really hard life. She was a Cambridge graduate, could have probably you know, done anything back in England. She chose to marry an ophthalmologist and go out to Pakistan and live in the desert in these sort of mud houses, trying to do cataract surgery and other things for people there. And, and it was hard. You know, it was really hard. It was hard bringing up kids. It was hard everyone getting sick the whole time and all this stuff. But she had this deep joy, like deep joy in her. And I, I don't actually, you know, I don't share their religious beliefs that at this point, but I do share deeply that, that the, the way that we are made, the way that we are made is not just for shopping. You know, it's like we, we, we get our, our deepest happiness and sense of purpose by finding something that's bigger than we are and, and, and working for that. We're not individuals. We're not. We're part of the human family and, and so much of who we are and, and what makes us work and makes us tick comes from embracing that knowledge. So doing something that is for all of us. It, it weirdly it brings it brings meaning and it brings joy and it but brings other things as well like it brings friendships and recognition and it's it's hard to do in the moment and short term but the more you do it the more it becomes a muscle and ultimately it it you end up in the version of yourself that you are happy to be so yeah I'm, I'm I couldn't be more grateful to my mom she she we lost her in December after she was, she was like 24 years in a home after a stroke, so kind of tragedy, but so grateful to her and so happy to be a conduit for that particular little ripple effect to continue to spread. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm sorry for your loss and what a beautiful ripple effect she mm. started. Yeah, beautiful. She is. Speaking of generous gifts, the Infectious Generosity website offers additional resources Amazing resources. So I just want to kind of rattle them off and we'll include links in the show notes so our listeners can get the book and access these resources. So it includes information on six ways to give that aren't money. It includes a list of ideas if you are able to be financially generous. Another section includes ways to influence local giving circles and nonprofit organizations in your community. And because we are nonprofits, it could be ways to even collaborate, use these ideas as a launch pad, because again, we are one community. We are stronger together. And then you also gave us an incredible gift called TIG, T-I-G-G. And I played with it yesterday. It was incredible. It's so it's an acronym for the Infectious Generosity Guru. So it's uh, an AI tool dedicated to helping us serve others. So it asked for my name. What do I care about? What are my skills? What do I, why don't you describe it? But way better than I describing <laughs> no. it, Chris. I mean, look, artificial intelligence is, is scary for sure. And we don't know where it's going to go, but unquestionably there are at least some good uses. And it was built with open AI support. It taps into the chat GPT engine. It read the book and it's, it's 
it's framed to try to help people brainstorm their own infectious generosity acts. So once it's found out a bit about you, you, you just start on a brainstorming journey. It'll help create ideas that you can then fine tune or not. At some point, if you like it, it will even, it will create like a little social media image that you can, you can share and try and recruit people to the cause. I mean, it's, look, AI, you know, it's, it's probably may not be for everyone. We had one person say, this has completely changed how, how I'm doing things. And I, it got me into trouble. I, I brainstormed with it and talked about a few things, said I was trying to spread generosity on direct. And then it brainstormed like five different categories that you could award. You could do an award online for different types of generosity, like bridging or kindness or courage or, or enchantment or whatever. And so I ended up doing, doing this and it, it cost me because I, I ended up deciding I had to have a, a prize for these awards. So I ended up <laughs> giving, giving away a bunch of Apple Vision Pros. But what it uncovered was amazing that there, there were accounts on X laboring away there under the radar that were actually beautiful and doing really, really beautiful things. So yeah, I did. Definitely, it's worth a play. It won't yes. be for everyone, but it, for some people, it may be really, really amazing. Yeah, so good. So good. All right. So before I let you go, Chris, and again, so generous with your time and your passion and your expertise, at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions to add oh. even more value. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. First question, what's the best fundraising or giving advice you've ever received? From Richard Rockefeller. Yes. Don't go smaller, go bigger, be audacious. Perfect. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? I'm going to have to go with my beautiful partner's book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Jacqueline Novogratz runs Acumen. I think her work is incredible and obviously I'm biased, but, but I'm also right. <laughs> <laughs> Jacqueline Novogratz, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Perfect. We'll include a link to that in the show notes for sure. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser or nonprofit leader must possess? A form of empathy, willingness to put yourself in the shoes of the donor, know where they're coming from and what, what excites them. Creativity, think outside the box. Most problems can be solved with imagination. And I, probably the most important is just determination. This work is so hard. You've got, you know, stick at it the first four things may not work. The fifth one, bingo. Yeah. What's your favorite fundraising or generosity application or tool? I've invested a few years in the Audacious Project. I think it's really exciting. We invite nonprofits around the world to come to us with their, basically to answer this question, what could you do if money was no object? And so we're looking for the biggest dreams. And I, it, it's not a perfect thing, but we're learning each year and it, it's attracting an ever bigger group of high net worth donors to come and support. There's a chapter in the book that talks a bit about the Audacious Project, but it also describes how anyone could apply the same fundraising technique locally. And if, boy, if anyone tries this locally and gets it to work, I would so love to hear from you. I, I, I think there's something big here. Yeah, fantastic. What's your favorite conference and why? And you might be a little biased on this one. I can't say TED. I can't say TED. <laughs> I can't say TED. I'm going to say TED next. It doesn't exist yet, but it's coming in October. It's, it's a new, slightly younger, more open to more people form of TED that's going to be held in Atlanta in October this year. 
going to be amazing. Yeah. I actually just got the email about it yesterday and signed up to be, you know, stay in the loop. Oh, excellent, Tony. Yes, I'm, I'm planning to go. All right. Last question. Knowing what you know now about generosity, what advice would you give your younger self? I actually wrote a letter to myself that I published in the book, my, to my younger self, that younger self that was haunted by the guilt and dismay at the prospect of a life of endless obligation. The letter I wrote said, basically, dear younger self, it, it's going to be okay. It's true that you do have an obligation to be generous, to be kind, but it's not going to make your life miserable. It's going to make it so, so much richer. And the letter I would write. Beautiful, beautiful. Chris, it has been an honor and pure joy to talk with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tammy. I'm excited by this podcast and I wish I could picture and see uh, what your listeners are and what they're doing. But uh, thank you for inviting me in. Our pleasure, for sure. If you want to learn more about Chris, Ted, Infectious Generosity, The Audacious Project, or any of the other resources we've talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Ugh, Chris. You are an inspiration. Oh, thank you, Tommy. This was great. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a fundraising transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.